as we gather around your word, would you, would you speak to us? Would you take the simplicity of what I say today and make it large in our hearts and minds and in the way that we begin to uh, live or to continue to live into this world with uh, your message and your love? Uh, help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to go there in a moment. We will come back to that text from Matthew 16. But one of the, I was just thinking this week, we've been doing this little series of what does, it mean to, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God, some of the things that apply to us living in the kingdom of God. Um, and then I suddenly realized, you know, we ne- hadn't spoken about for ages or ever, well, not ever, but in the last season, how do we enter into all of this? How do we become part of the family of God as we go about the ways of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is near, but how do we enter in? We say we trust Jesus, but what is the means? How does that come about that we can trust? So I want to talk a little bit this, today on the cross, just briefly. Obviously, the cross is a huge subject. There are volumes written. I want to just share a few things that help us maybe to think through and go back to the scriptures and ponder in our lives. It's through the cross that we are justified and we receive new birth and we get access to this kingdom life. Um, an old preacher from two centuries ago said the superficial views of the work of Christ produce superficial Christian lives. Superficial views of the work of Christ produce superficial Christian lives. So I'm hoping that we will touch on this and, and, and deal with it. So let's go, go to this Galatians 6. We're going to start at verse 7 and read up to verse 16. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I'm reading from the NIV. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. And now we have to understand this is written to the church in Galatia. Uh, There's a context. Paul had planted this church. It led many of these people to Jesus established this church, gone away. Then other people had come in and begun to say, you've got to add to your faith. You've got to add circumcision and works and all these old Jew, uh, Jewish practices to make sure you become a mature and a Christian. You can't just do this simple thing. So Paul writes this letter to counter that and comes to this section and he's saying, Circumcision means nothing. That's an old covenant. That's an old purpose. That was an old way to be established in the people of God. It was distinctly Jewish, but the gospel has come now to the whole world. Circumcision is done away with, 
And the way we enter in is through the cross of Jesus and what Jesus has achieved on the cross through his death and then his resurrection. We all know that's pretty straightforward Christianity, I hope. But what he says in verses 7 and 8, and I think this is really important for us to understand, he says, the life that we live in this world is really, really important. Because there's a sense often that we, we get saved, we can do what we like, and then one day we'll die and we'll go to heaven and everything will be beautiful. And part of this idea of us living in the kingdom of God that we've been speaking about for months, early years now, is that what happens between salvation and glorification is really, really important. We are meant to live God life. We are meant to live like Jesus, look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and minister to people like Jesus. It's really, really important. And Paul says this, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, if you've ever read someone like um, C.S. Lewis, he often sp speaks about moral law. Willard does the same. There's moral law in operation that God has put in motion, and it's kind of set in place. It's an absolute. If you sow bananas, you will reap bananas. If you sow walnuts, you shall reap walnuts. If you sow into the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. If you sow into the spirit, you will reap from the spirit. That's a moral law that exists in the universe. If you jump up, what happens? You will come down. There's certain laws in place. So he's saying what, what we do in this world really matters. If you do evil, if you live outside of the bounds of God and you just sow to the flesh the things that make you happy, the things that just give you joy that are outside of God, and it does despite anyone else, if you're walking over people so that you can get what you want and everyone else gets crushed, you are sowing to the flesh, from that you will reap. You might not reap it in the first year, you might not reap it in the second year, but you will reap it. It's going to happen. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you sow to the God life, if you sow to the way that God wants us to live, then you will reap that. Now, again, you might not reap it today. You might not reap it tomorrow. You might not reap it next year. But you will reap it. That's, God can't be mocked. That's the way he set it in place. So the question out of this, how does one begin to sow to the Spirit? Well, to me, that would be a natural question if we were saying, oh, I don't want to sow to the flesh. I want, I want the good things. Well, how do we sow to the Spirit? And the summary is we sow by receiving Christ through the gospel, being justified, receiving new life, being born again, be converted, be saved, be regenerated, all the words that we like. And we enter this new life, we receive this new life from God, and then we begin to operate like that. That doesn't mean we can't do bad things while we are saved, but it opens the door to us to begin to live the good life in God. And then we pick up on living in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of his God is here, and we do you know, spiritual practices and changing our narratives and all that thing as we mature, go through the process of sanctification where we work with the Holy Spirit to become the people that God wants us to be. All right? God, Jesus does all the other work, but sanctification we work 
with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I'm rushing it. I'm doing it short. I'm doing it quick. And we'll cover, look, at, look at a whole bunch of scriptures in a moment. So that's what Paul's saying. And what he's saying about these other people, and we see it in our world today in different forms. There's, there's, there's a huge movement that is denying parts of what happened on the cross. Oh, Jesus couldn't have done it. God wouldn't have done that to his son on the cross. All sorts of things. And we're not going to get into that today. We might get into it sometime. Well, I think we need to. This is the point I want to make from verse 12. The preaching of the cross has always led to some form of persecution. It says these people added, they wanted to add this like law, this circumcision, because they were afraid of the persecution that was coming. Because they were speaking into a world where if you wanted to know the gods, you had to go through a lot of activity. You had to do a lot of sacrifices. You had to do a lot of praying on your knees. There were all sorts of things you had to do. Along comes this gospel of Jesus, which says, will you just trust in the work that I have done on the cross? So you must understand, one, it does away with the whole industry of selling indulgences and selling idols and all sorts of things. At that level, there's persecution. In our world, where we are so self-reliant, where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, where you are responsible for your life, we actually say Jesus has actually done a work that gives us access to the new and good life in God. And I mean, I've had people say to me, no, I, I'm in charge of that. You keep pushing that, people push back on you. The cross is not a popular thing anymore. You can have all sorts of things, but don't, don't do the cross. Because the cross just causes you to think, what am I doing, if you really think it through? Let's turn to a few other verses quickly. I want to read from 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing. To those outside of God's life who have not yet seen that, it's just stupid. How on earth can something that happened 2,000 years ago, some Jewish rabbi died on a cross, claimed that he was risen again. How can that in any way have anything to do with the way that I am meant to live today and determines my future? It's absolutely foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And now we come into what was preached the cross. It's taking it out of the hands of people who think they're smart. It's taking it out of the hands of those who think they're not worth it. It's taking it out of the hands of those who think they are really worth it. It's changing all of that and saying, no, no, no. It's through this foolishness that something, somebody else did something that you will receive the good life. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Two big things that were operating in that day. Show me. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees always come to Jesus, show us a sign. Then we will believe. 
I want to tell you that even showing a sign doesn't make you believe. I saw a miracle when I was at high school, a real miracle, and I did not believe. Well, that was cool. Seeing a sign is not a guarantee that you will believe. People have seen. The Greeks say, what do they want? They want wisdom. This has got to be logical. You've got to figure this out. It doesn't make sense. Because into both those camps comes this message of the cross, which is absolute foolishness. That exists in our world today. People just don't get the cross. They don't get the gospel. Can't be so. I mean, I am the captain of my own destiny. It's me. I'm in charge of my hack. Doesn't make any sense at all. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. What's it basically saying? It's foolishness to everybody. Because those were the two groups of people, Jews and everyone who was non-Jew. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. You remember who was Paul? Paul was a learned, studied man. He had studied under Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of that era. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was knowledgeable. He was a Roman citizen, so he was steeped in Greek culture as well, not just Jewish culture. He says, but when I came to you, I didn't come with all of that. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. Let me say this quickly. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be intelligent. It doesn't mean you shouldn't debate and think through things. That's not what this is saying. It's saying at the heart of the matter, you will never get what's happening unless you go through the foolish way. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's a really powerful text. And I would love to call us back to remember the cross, that it's really important to the way we walk out our lives in Jesus. That when we talk about Jesus to people, that somewhere we have to talk about what Jesus established and did at the cross. We can't just talk about Jesus a good man, Jesus a wise teacher, that we are disciples to a rabbi. All of that being true, but the access to that is through Jesus the Savior who gave himself up on a cross. So Maybe a little question. I don't know if I can answer it all this morning today, but we'll touch on how does the cross save us? And I think the first thing to understand is recognize who is on the cross. That's a really important point when it comes to understanding the cross and its application to our lives and salvation and justification and new birth. 
So the text that Mike read from Matthew 16, which is a beautiful text, Jesus saying to his disciples, who, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is, is a, a way of saying, who do people say I am? God. Oh, Elijah, you know, one of the prophets. But he says, who do you say I am? And I think, I really believe that's one of the most important questions that we can be asked this side of eternity is who do we say Jesus is? Because if we say Jesus is just a good prophet, a nice guy, a good teacher, we love some of the things he said, we actually miss the point. He is all those. But Peter comes with a revelation that he is the Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. So the moment he makes that declaration, suddenly he's saying right here in this person is the fulfillment of all these thousands of years of prophecy and expectation and promise. In this one man, you are Messiah. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty bold statement when you are talking to someone and they come to the place, oh, this is the Christ. This is God. Because that's what we're saying. And, and Jesus said, well, you didn't get this by human reasoning. You got this because you got a revelation from God. And upon that revelation... I'm able to build my church. Upon that revelation that, that you have received, that I am the Christ, the Messiah, upon that, I am able to establish that which I want to establish into the future. Look what happens thereafter. It says, he, I'm just paraphrasing so we don't have to read it again. He goes on to say, from that moment on, he began to prepare them that he had to go to Jerusalem and die. Is that what it says? Before he could tell them that, because many people died in Jerusalem. Many people were crucified in Jerusalem. Maybe thousands of people were crucified in Jerusalem under Roman law, under Roman rule. They could do it just because they felt like it. And there'd be an insurrection here by some zealots, and the Roman governors say, okay, we'll take one from you, one from you, one from you, and in you go, and we're going to crucify you or beat you or do something. So that wasn't unique. The uniqueness was, who was going to be crucified this time? So before he could explain to them the whole and prepare them for this journey to Jerusalem where he was going to die, he first had to get them to know who he was. Because who is on the cross is really crucial to the gospel message. Otherwise, I could say I'm on the cross. Does that make sense? Go back and read Matthew 16 and dig in like that and think, see it. It's really important to know who Jesus is because then it makes sense. If Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, the fulfillment of the ages. The, to, so we can't get mad with Peter when he says, no, I'm never going to let that happen. You can't get mad with him. Why? Because suddenly everything that he knows is, oh, here it is, here it is. It's going to drive the Romans out. Everything's going to be good. And he says, no, I'm going to die. <laughs> foolishness, isn't it? Absolute foolishness. It's so foolish. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Imagine if I said that to one of you, you said that to me. I'd kind of cheesed off. 
But it's really, to, the cross only works if the person on the cross is Messiah, Son of Man, God himself. Because it's only Jesus, Messiah, that can save us. So why does he have to die? Why couldn't we have just waved a wand? Why couldn't have God just made a declaration? From this moment on, if you trust me, everything will be okay. Why did he have to go through the cross? Have you, have you ever thought about that? There's a beautiful scripture in Mark 10, 45. It says this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came, the intention of Jesus coming is that he would give his life a ransom for many. And you have to tie it back into all this Old Testament, all this Old Covenant promises where there was a you know, tabernacle and an altar and a high priest. And because of sin in the world, they would come with their spotless lamb and they would slaughter it and put their hands on the bullocks. All sorts, I'm not going to go into all this stuff. This blood would be shed so that the people would be forgiven of their sins. It kind of, so Jesus comes to complete and fulfill all this Old Testament law, sacrifice and blood, etc., etc. If you go read Luke chapter 9, which is the, the transfiguration. Anyone read that story recently? What happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? Anyone know? Yeah? But who does he meet with? Because who he meets with is really important to the story. It's not just that his face shines. Yeah. The law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah. Representing the law and the prophets. And I'm not going to read the whole text, but this is what he says. When they were up there in Luke chapter 9, they spoke about his departure, which was he, he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's what the text says. They were talking about what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Now, you can use your imagination here a little bit, because we're called to use our imaginations to see how good and great God is. Here they're talking. The person that was established the law and the prophets, and they're talking about, ah, that's what, ah, oh, oh, I don't know. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. So what happens on the cross is the fulfillment of all these sacrifices and things that have been happening all these centuries now get one day fulfilled in one day, in one place, in one man, on one hill, on one cross. Done. Finished. Remember when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he call him? Behold the Lamb of God. That was the prophetic picture. Because the Lamb was the... One who was offered. Do you remember first Passover when they, they left Egypt at the Exodus? They had to slaughter the lamb, take the blood, put on their lintels. The angel of death would pass over. The, lamb, the blood of the lamb always was the way to hold back the wrath of God, the judgment of God because of his justice to, and his hate for sin. So Jesus becomes the lamb of God, spotless, innocent, comes to deliver us. Romans 3 says this, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. By Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful scripture. Maybe you find it difficult. I just love it. See, at the cross, there's the joining of two major components in the universe. One of them is guilty humanity, and the other is a holy, loving God. And they meet at the cross. That's where the joining happens. That's where a reconciliation happens. That's where everything that God always wanted to happen begins to happen. And it's through blood. In Leviticus 7.14, there's a verse that says this, as it's tied into why there's sacrifice. The life of a creature is in the, the blood. If you go to hospital right now, and you have heart failure, they can put you on a heart machine. They can put you on a lung machine. They can put you on a kidney machine. They can keep your brain stimulated, keep your life. They can do all sorts of things. But if you do not have blood, you die. Why? Because blood is the way that oxygen gets around your system. Blood is the way that the, 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 the rubbish comes out and, and leaves your system. Without blood, you die. Life of a creature is in the blood. It's kind of wise, written many thousands of years ago, wasn't it? Before all the physicians and all that. Then jump to Hebrews. And it says this, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Now, I know in our day and age, and we're going to think through this, and we're going to, in the, whatever lies ahead, we're going to talk about this. People don't like this idea of death for death. On the cross. It just doesn't go with our Western sensibilities. But we've got to think it through. I'm just saying, as it is right now, we, we're going to unpack that in another time. This is such a big, big subject. But through the shedding of blood, life given for life, perfect life given, perfect blood shed, comes this forgiveness. Our response to that. In many ways, the Bible speaks about it. Um, if, you if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. If you repent and be baptized, the, the way Peter talks about it in Acts. There's all different ways they speak about it, but all of it has do we trust in this work that Jesus did on the cross as we trust that he's done it for us, salvation, new life floods our soul and we are justified before God. And again, justification is a whole talk on its own. Is this all right? Is everyone bored? Let's read a few scriptures. Acts 13, therefore, my friends, I want you to know, and this is Paul talking in this Greek setting, and he's explained death and resurrection, and he says this, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus 
the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to, make, to obtain under the law of Moses. In Acts 17, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. The end of Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. A whole bunch of people. I want to read the rest of that. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of this is fulfilling this word from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the same thing. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've done it bad, but the iniquity is God's put it upon him. Galatians 1, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. From this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Do you remember the story when the snakes came and began to bite all the, like a judgment, all the Israelites? And God said, raise up a stake and put this bronze, whatever, snake on it. And if you look at it, you shall be healed. Isn't this the same idea? Something raised up. For, um, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And sometimes we just start there, but we've got to read that verse before. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might not die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, etc., etc., etc. There are masses of scriptures that speak about that. The cross is key to who we are as Christians. Now, we haven't touched on the resurrection. That's another whole thing, but um, the resurrection is important. I want to read something from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anyone know who Martin Lloyd-Jones was? A good preacher in the 1800s. 
into this, I mean this century, sorry, 20th century, I'm thinking of Spurgeon. I do not care who you are, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I do not care what particular form your sin takes. There is a great deal of attention paid to that today. I do not want a catalog of your sins. I do not care what your sins are. They can be very respectable or they can be heinous, vile, foul, filthy. It does not matter, thank God. Though you may be the vilest person ever known, and though, and though you may until this moment have lived your life in the gutters and the brothels of sin in every shape and form, I say this to you. Be it known unto you that through this man, this Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. And by, by him all who believe, you and I included, are at this very moment justified entirely and completely from everything you have ever done, if you believe that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he died there on the cross for your sins and to bear your punishment. If you believe that and thank him for it and rely utterly only upon him and what he has done, I tell you in the name of God, all your sins are blotted out completely as if you had never sinned in all your life. And his righteousness is put on you and God sees you perfect in his son. That, that is the message of the cross. And that is what it means to be Christian. Pretty good, eh? Whoa, it's like fired up. But we're doing okay? I'll read two things. This, today, I've been using this as my sort of my, my little daily thing every day. So I'm working through this time. It's called my daily pursuit. It's Tozer, stuff that's put together from Tozer's work. This was today's one. The scripture is one of the scriptures I was going to read from Acts 4. It says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. In my life, the big sins have never been the ones that bothered me. It's the sneaky little mousy sins, the sins I'm ashamed of, and the sins I do not even want to think about. They are the ones that bother my conscience. Even though you have sinned all these, those little rascally sins, they have a limit to them. God could set eight or ten angels counting, and in ten years or so, they could all be counted. They could find my sins, add them up and say, here's the total, and the number would string clear across the room. Some angel would say, Pooh, I guess he's doomed. God would say, no, look to my grace. It extends not across the room, but from eternity past to eternity to come. When Jesus died, it was enough. I am glad to have enough of something. All those little mousy sins weigh me down, and the devil wants me to concentrate on them. God, on the other hand, wants me to concentrate on his unlimited grace in Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It helped me today. And I'm going to close with this. So, um, Aaron Wazalewski has been a help to me. He got me going on reading prayers. I, haven't done, I hadn't done that for years and years or decades, uh, trying to move away from my Catholic roots. But he said, he, one day, I think it was you were reading some prayers. I thought, I'm going to do this. So I've started getting some prayers and reading them. There's some wonderful things. So this is a Bible prayer book for today. It's written in the 70s, I think. And each day there's something. This one says, the day he died. 
Father, in sympathizing, in sympathizing, in sympathizing with Christ on his cross, we are sympathizing with suffering people everywhere. We are joining our prayers to the prayers of the hungry and the thirsty, the hurt and the lonely, the sick and the dying, the outcasts and the refugees. We are uniting ourselves with all who are oppressed, all the known innocents who are condemned to death, all who are betrayed by their friends. We are sharing in the pain of all who are judged fools by the people they have served all their lives, all who are nailed to the cross of other men's sins and stupidities, all who feel in their hearts that you, God, have abandoned them. We believe that Jesus Christ, your Son, is also Son of Man. We believe that in him all humankind has suffered, been humiliated, and died. But we are confident, too, that by his bruises all of us are healed. That is why, Father, we take our place at the foot of his cross, knowing that Good Friday for then is really good because of him who loved us and gave himself up for us. I ask that you would give thought to the cross on a fairly regular basis and remind yourself that we are called daily to pick up our cross and follow him. It's not a once, the beginning of your Christian walk. It's a daily thing. Just as the Lord's prayer is a daily thing. That we remember what Jesus has done for us. 